My Father, we've come in this morning. One thing I, I guarantee you, Father, you know that we need to know is a little bit more about how much you love us. Because it's that love, it's your love that fills us up, it's your Father love that rooted in it and grounded in it the enemy can can slap and kick and punch and shoot and and bomb and uh, we may be downcast at times but we will not be out because we are rooted and grounded in your love yes, Lord. the most powerful commodity in the universe and we we also know Lord that it's it's kind of easy in a group context to, to sing the songs wanting to know it and wanting to believe it but sometimes deep down inside because of the way the enemy has wounded us because of some of our own choices because of just the way life is a battle we fight not against flesh and blood that that experience of your love that we so desperately long for not not just to know the words but to know that experience of those arms of love it seems so fleeting at times, Father. Hard to, hard to grasp, hard to believe. But I believe, Father, what your, your son Peter said when he said, if you love one another deeply, that love will heal a multitude of sins. There is nothing more powerful than your love. There is nothing that the enemy can bring upon yes. me or us or one church or the body of Christ universal or the universe that cannot be trumped by the powerful love of you, O oh God, who graciously calls the likes of us sons and daughters, and you invite us to call you. Help us, Father, to um, live more deeply into the availability to that love this morning here yes, at One Church with our brothers and sisters. We're all on the same journey. There's no hierarchy here. There's no one up and one down. Even the pastors fight to get to the feet of the people because they're servants. Would you, would you meet with us in these last moments? And, as you have already, and just pull us close, whisper in our ear, I love you, son. I'll never let you go. I love you, daughter. And I will never, ever let you go. In the name of your only begotten son, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. So I suppose it's a, uh, did I do that? Okay. Remember Steve Urkel? I miss Steve Urkel. I suppose it's the kind of thing you're supposed to say um, to a community after the worship time. You know, wasn't that worship package amazing? Um, but I, I'm just, if you know me, I'm not like that. I'm not going to say something just because you're supposed to say it. In fact, I'm likely just because I've got like a, an attitude. I'm likely to say the opposite if I'm supposed to say something. So when I say this morning that I, I appreciate my brothers and sisters here, I mean it from the bottom of my heart. And what I want to really say is, I mean, there's talent everywhere. I mean, I pastor in Motown, for heaven's sakes. Um, 
I mean, there's talent. But I, uh, sister, you and your team, I felt you this morning. And, you know, if you, if somehow, God forbid, a car runs over your hands and you can't play as well as you used to, God forbid, ensure those things, by the way, because those are, those are gold. <laughs> but if, if they happen, you know, if something, just don't lose what you've got here. And to the others, from the instrumentalists to the, the singers, I know you felt them too, because it's real to them. I also want to say that I um, love your pastors. And again, I don't say what I don't mean. Um, these brothers are the real deal, and if you don't know that it's so tempting in churchdom and Christianity, it, it, hypocrisy is, I mean, we're just a, an insecure lot. Pastors have a tendency to be an insecure lot. And so we, even though Paul says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power might be of God, not of us. Many of us, we, we don't want to show our dirt in the sense of to admit we're human and, and to let ourselves be loved and to, uh, to go lower and to meet God there. Um, we, we have a tendency to try to dress up in, in, in something that uh, makes us look good and, it, and it's kind of, you know, we get to it. You get to a pastor's gathering, and you know, it, we're like a pack of dogs, man. We're just walking around, just trying to sniff out who the big dog is, and get. I'm just telling you, that's the way I've been doing this 35 years. It can be a game, but these brothers are the real deal. I'm telling you, they're authentic sons of God, and uh, they're in this because they really love Jesus Christ, and they're in this because they really love you. And I love them. And I, I love you. I, I know you might say, how can you? You don't know us that well. Well, I was with you one time, and I fell in love. It was love at first sight. And you guys sent me a one-church mug. And so I drink a lot of coffee, and so a couple times a week I get that one-church mug out and uh, think about y'all and pray for you for real. Uh, that's a cool mug, by the way. That's a cool mug. Um, so whatever else you don't have going on, you got a good mug. I gotta tell you that. <laughs> so uh, the last time I was with you, I did talk about the love of God because honestly, since I met the love of God, 31 years after I trusted Christ, I met the love of God 31 years after I trusted Christ. I mean, I heard for God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, uh, and so I trust. I believed that He wanted to save me eternally, but after that. I didn't really get that he loved me. And so 36, 31 years later, when I, after almost taking my own life, this is all in, in the book, by the way, that I wrote, um, I finally met the love of God. And so since then, all I want to talk about is the love of God. And so I want to say today that um, if I repeat anything from last time, please forgive me. I only have about two sermons now, and they're both about the love of God, and they get all mixed <laughs> up. And so just forgive me. But last time I talked a lot more than I want to talk this morning about the individual love of the Father and how he... We are his sons and daughters, and, and I didn't get to do this, but I wanted to. I wanted to come around to each of you, and if you would allow me to, to take you in my arms as a father and just to, to look you in the eye, and you could discern whether you thought I was sincere or not. And I wanted just to tell you that in, 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 in behalf of our Abba, I wanted to tell you that I love you and that he loves you. Whatever you've been through, he has not abandoned you. He is here for you, and he wants to fill you up with that love if you allow him to come close and to begin to heal you. And I remember uh, doing a, a Jewish blessing prayer, uh, a Sabbath blessing prayer for a young 
Father, right over here. Were any of you here that day when, when, when we did that blessing prayer? Yeah. And uh, I'm not going to do that this morning, so you're safe over here. You're very safe. Um, but I think what I would like to share with you, I don't know if you want to call it a sermon. I don't even these days know what a sermon is, really. I, I know what I was taught, but I really just want to talk with you as, as an old guy who loves you um, and loves your pastors. I want to maybe just give the next piece to what we talked about last time in terms of living into the love of the Father and giving it away. I want to talk to you more about how that love plays out in your community. So um, three things, really, I want to say. The first one is this, and that is that I want to say to you as an outsider, but also a brother who is an insider with you, on the journey with you, that one church and its success, which to me success doesn't mean mega Success means kingdom. Whatever, whatever the, the kingdom of God is about, you all living into that kingdom, giving away that love that the T-shirt represents, that it is so important. It is of paramount importance. This, what you're doing here is not um, a sociological experiment. This is not like, well, we hope it works. This has to work. This has to work. This is Colossians 3, 10 and 11. Uh, where the one new man is neither Jew nor Greek, uh, neither male nor female, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. This is the living representation of the truth that the kingdom of God has begun to descend upon the earth. I think it just went from a talk into a sermon, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to dial it back and uh, start to just talk again. I just get all jazzed up because I don't know if we get that, generally speaking, around the country. When I see, you know, all the division in the churches, and we act like that's normal. And, and I'm to the point now where I don't, I don't know. God is their judge. He's my judge. And so I'm not judging. I'm just saying what I know church is is what one church is doing. That's what I know. And that is when there's space created because of the love of Christ and because of the death and the resurrection of Christ for all people to come together and to know that they're a part of God's kingdom. So what you are doing must work because the world, if you haven't noticed lately, especially, jacked up and bleeding out, and we are their only hope. So when you get a little crossways with, with, with the brothers and sisters here, because you will if you're in relationship with them that's real. When you get a little crossways and you want to develop your little attitude, which I understand, I already confessed, I have attitude, I get it. <laughs> but just evaluate how important that thing is between you and your brother and sister. I don't care if they have been up in your stuff. I don't care if their wounds are just, just bleeding. All over. They are your brother or sister in Christ. You must find a way to stay together. Because if you and I don't stay together, how in the world is the world who has division oozing out of their pores going to have hope that there's any healing for them? And so um, when, when Jesus says, we are the salt of the earth, we are the light of the world, my pastor friend Harvey Carey likes to say, if the world is rotting, it's not President Trump's fault. It's the church's fault because we have not been salt that preserves. If, if the world is dark, 
it's not the fault of the Democratic Party or that we haven't had enough seminars um, or we haven't appropriated enough funds. It's because the church has not been the light that Jesus said, when the light shines, the darkness cannot overcome it. So, my brothers and sisters, I don't want to be, you know, my wife says I'm melodramatic. I don't know. She does say it. <laughs> but this is what I want to say to you today. What we're doing here, this is, we're like a part of a huge battle. We are in a war. The success of, this is like the western front of the church or the eastern front of the church. It's like you remember in the World War II dramas, if, if the front falls, then the enemy comes. This must win. Because Satan's not playing, man, and he, he hates people. And God, through his son, Jesus Christ, loves people. Remember that, that uh, story when Jesus is in Jerusalem and, and he needs to go to Galilee. And it says he has to go through Samaria. No, he didn't. In fact, the Samaritans were intermarried Jewish folk and Assyrian folk from the captivity. And, of course, the Samaritans were marginalized and stereotyped. And they hated the Jews. The Jews hated the Samaritans. It was just, it was a racial division. It was an ethnic division. But Jesus said he had to go to Samaria. You know why? Because there was a person there he needed to see because he loved people. And so, of course, as you notice, all along the way, the disciples, they're all about going to find a McDonald's. That's all they're trying to do. Are you hungry? I mean, the word food comes up about six times. And finally, after Jesus has been spending time there with this broken woman, God love her, man, who had been abused by men and marginalized and cast aside by men. And here's a man who said, he was trying to just show her before he even said anything, feel me, sister, I will never hurt you. I came to love you. And then he finally, you know, he, the sister's so overwhelmed and so overcome that she goes back and get all of her brothers and sisters and they come down from that little community, Sychar, I think it is, and they're running down the field. And here comes here come the disciples, and they got about six bags of burgers, and they got crumbs on their beards, and they're like, hey, Jesus, you know, with stuff spilling out of their mouth, hey, you know, what are you doing with this woman? What are you? He goes, he, he goes are, they go, are you hungry? He goes, I got food you don't know anything about. His food, the Samaritan woman, his food, the brothers and sisters who are running down out of that, that city to come down and be with him, they were his food. He loves us. He loves people. And Satan hates people. And he is not just trying to um, mess them up a little. He's trying to take them out. John 10, Jesus says he's trying to steal, kill, and destroy. Little girl in our community, she... Gross Point, you know, a very, very wealthy community. That's where she grew up. Not the hood. Gross Point. Started using drugs as a kid. Her parents were divorced and such. And uh, just a lot of brokenness. And then she started riding the trains. Anyway, a couple years ago, she decided she had enough. And her parents prayed to her. Her, her stepmom and her dad prayed her back to some kind of sanity. And she went to a place called Life Challenge. And she was there for a year treatment program. And she got clean. Man, I baptized that little girl. I wish I would have brought a picture of her. I baptized her. Um, 
first Sunday in November, I think it was, or first Sunday in December, I forget which, but um, first Sunday in November. And um, she was doing so well. She had so many plans about what she was going to do to give her life away because she finally knew that Jesus loved her and he had given her his life. And then one night she got depressed and she said, I'm just going to try heroin one more time. And uh, she's gone. She's gone. See, listen, listen. Satan is not playing. He's trying to kill folks. I sat with my next door neighbor um, a few months ago after one of the the shootings, you know, it might have been Minneapolis, St. Paul. It might have been, I think at one point there was two in one day. One in Dallas, one in Minneapolis. I don't know. But one of those moments where, and uh, my brother across the street happens to be a man of color. He's an African-American brother. He's, he's a businessman. Um, every once in a while we'll have a beer together. We're just, we're just good friends. He's got two little daughters. I've raised three, three grown daughters, so we have a lot of connection there. So I just said, I would just come over. I said, Daryl, what's going on, man? And he invited me up on his porch. We sat there, and this guy's not a really emotional guy, but I'm telling you, his, the, the tears started to run down his face. I said, my brother, just, if, I don't know if you trust me, but I, I'm here because I really do care about you. Just tell me, tell me what you're feeling. He said, uh, I said, you got to be afraid with everything that's going on. He said, I'm afraid, and I'm a Caucasian male. And I, and I said, you've got to be afraid, my brother. And he said, it's so funny. He said, I'm not afraid for my daughters. I'm not afraid for my wife. I'm afraid for me. I live in one of the most uh, wealthy communities in the country and have an amazing job. I have a beautiful family, and I'm afraid. The other day when a cop pulled up behind me, he actually was trying to go around me. He said, my heart just about stopped in my chest. And I thought, there's the enemy trying to squeeze the literal emotional life out of this man. His wife is a believer. I'm not sure he is yet, but he, he's on his way, I believe. And Satan just is like, I got you, man. I'm going to use culture. I'm going to use racism. I'm going to use the ignorance of folk. I'm going to use the current climate, which in my view is almost, is, it's almost, I grew up in civil rights. And even though I was a white cat, I, I could feel it as a kid what was going on. I read the stories and, 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 and my brothers and sisters of color, would, we would talk. And so I saw, I know about Emmett Till and I, I knew the pain of that precious Chicago 14-year-old that, that got jacked up and murdered because of just blatant racism in Mississippi and Rosa Parks. And I, I, I lived into that the best I could, the way I knew how as a young kid that came from a rather racist Christian community. And um, I thought the enemy, the, the, our culture is almost back there again, that the angst I feel in our culture reminds me of the angst I felt there, the mistrust the enemy's trying to take us out you've got to win I was in McDonald's yesterday in Portland over by uh, Max Church and I don't know I just stood there and watched people come in it was just a moment and I thought look at these folk what is the enemy trying to do to take them out they need Grace Community Church they need one church whatever you do in your worship services they need the love that God has given you for them to heal them nothing else can nothing else will you must win and that little word heal brings me to the second thing I want to say um, what we are going to offer these folk who are wounded it can't be just a sermon and a song can't just be a program it can't be again 
something that maybe they could get at the community ed program. Because folk, because they're so wounded by our enemy, they need to be healed. They don't just need to be intellectually stimulated or to have a, a new set of truths that maybe we, you know, rah-rah them into going out and, you know, doing better financially and doing better in their families. Because when there's brokenness inside, and I don't care if you've got resources or if you don't. I preached a, a couple weeks ago and, or a couple months ago in Scottsdale, Arizona, where it seems like everybody has like a beamer. And after, after preaching and after doing that blessing prayer, there were grown men coming out and standing there with, you know, just dressed to the nines like they just got off the golf course. Coming up with literally their, their, their little lips just going like this and the tears just running down their face. To the point that I couldn't even just sign the book. I had to get out and give them a hug because they're so wounded inside. That brother, that brother didn't just need words from me. He needed something that was going to heal his broken heart. I don't even know what his brokenness was. Don't you think it's interesting that when our Savior Jesus came out in Nazareth, he chose the Isaiah scroll and he turned to the, one of the last of the Servant of Yahweh passages, Isaiah 61. He picked that one and he read this and he said, I've come to heal the brokenhearted and set the captives free. And then he said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your healing or in your hearing. Don't you think it's amazing? What the people need is healing. What Jesus came to bring is healing. We are the body of Jesus. We've got to offer them the healing of our Jesus. I think it's very easy for us to believe um, something different even about ourselves. I think especially, you know, we're seminary trained as pastors and we're trained in all these theological synthetic uh, doctrines that we can, you know, learn how to put together a sermon and with good illustrations. We can make people laugh. We can make people cry. We show the videos. I mean, we, and that somehow all we need to do is to get some truth into people's left brain where we do our thinking, and then they're going to take that truth, and they're going to, uh, because we're going to pep them up um, and have a midweek service that will pep them up some more, we're going to let the, they're going to take that truth, and they're going to go out and pl apply it to the wounded circumstances in their life, and they're going to heal themselves, basically. I call that get-her-done theology. You know, you have a wound, you, 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 drive by, you drive by a marquee for a church and it says, we're going to teach on biblical finances, how to have financial freedom. You go, well, that sounds interesting to me because our finances are jacked up. So you go in, you do the eight-week series, you take copious notes, you've got your Bible app, you know, you, you've got videos you download so you can watch them to be encouraged during the week. You take Financial Peace University, you do whatever it is that's out there and you do it and you get it, you got your notebook, and then... You go to the casino and throw away 10 grand. But you just had the eight-week seminar. Or, you, you know, we're going to teach you how to be a good husband and how to be a good wife. So here are the six things you never do in an argument. And then after you hear that series and you memorize the six things, you go home. And that day, you do five of them. That day, you break five of them. And then you stop coming to church. You know why? Because you think, if I come back, all those other folks are getting her done. Why can't I get her done? Underneath our brains are these things called, we have a heart, and it's full of emotion. And many times, their emotion is awesome. I mean, joy and 
excitement, you know, when your favorite team, you know, scores the winning touchdown, whoa, you know, and you're just, you're just all about it. Like, that's what makes life worth living, to feel like that. But emotions can get damaged, and you can feel the power of bitterness and rage and anxiety and apathy and sadness and shame. And can I tell you, those wounded emotions will trump your cognition and my cognition every time. My wife and I have had an especially tough year for a lot of different reasons I won't go into. We've been married 39 years. I think I probably told you the last time I was here, she is the hottest 59-year-old on the planet. I love this woman. <laughs> she is my friend. I miss her like crazy. I'm texting her like crazy love stuff last night on the phone about midnight, you know. If I wasn't married, it'd be illegal what I said to her last night. <laughs> But I am married, so God's like going like this to me, you know. <laughs> We've had a tough year, and I, I can remember a couple of arguments ago where literally I'm sitting in the middle of this argument, and my wife is more of the hider. And if you haven't noticed, I'm more of the one, we're going to work this out. We're going to work it out right now, you know, that kind of thing, and, which is what you marry opposites. You know, that's kind of how you do it. And so um, in my left brain, Honestly, look, I've preached through Ephesians 5 about how many times. I know, the, I know all the Greek words that talk about what I'm supposed to be doing with my wife and not doing with my wife, how to love her as Christ loved the church, be sacrificial. And in my left brain, in the middle of this argument, where I was just the, I, she triggered the, can I say this word? She triggered the hell out of me, I'm telling you. <laughs> I was just so above the moment. My emotions were just all over the place. My left brain was quoting, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. In Greek. <laughs> While my emotions proceeded in that moment to trump everything I knew in my brain, what I continue to need is healing here. I don't just need a teacher. I need a healer. The people you're ministering to don't just need a teacher. They need a healer. And then, of course, underneath those emotions are these things called uh, false beliefs. That's why Paul talks about renewing our mind. And these are paradigm lies. Remember when Jesus in John 8 told the Pharisees, your father is a liar. And he's the father of all lies. These lies feed these negative emotions. They're, they're, they're paradigm lies that impact us. So, so, for example, this is what the people you're going to be ministering to, let alone us. This is what they're feeling. In their head. This is what they're believing about themselves. I am stupid. Not just for five minutes. Like for their whole life. They wake up and feel I'm stupid. They go to bed feeling I'm stupid. That's called a false belief that impacts the emotions that need to be healed. Or we'll never know what it means to be loved by Christ and to be free in Christ. We'll never find what we're looking for. I am ugly. Women are not as important as men. I will never amount to anything. I can't do anything right. I am permanently defective. I am damaged goods. Men should never express emotions. I'm on my own. I can do life on my own. I'm a little better than other people. God is angry at me. I'm not capable of succeeding. Everyone else is a normal sinner. I'm all alone in how badly I sin. I'm fundamentally unlovable. Someday, success will satisfy the deepest longings in my heart. I'm defined by my performance. No one will love me if I don't achieve something. If I am my true self, 
people will not want to be with me and be my friend. I must be approved by certain others to feel good about myself. I have no future. My future depends completely on me. I'm on the outside looking in. I don't really fit with anyone anywhere. Let me just tell you, you could come up to me after church and you could say to me, I have false belief number 37 coursing through my veins and have since I was 10 and it's impacting my life. And I could take that false belief and tell you the truth. I could just say, here's what I'm gonna tell you. That's a lie and here's the truth. And you would go out that day still believing in that false belief because you see it's attached to these negative emotions that don't just need a sermon, need to be healed. Are, are you catching this? This is the whole world now. This is Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. This is everybody, whatever your economic status, wherever you come from, whatever your ethnicity, the enemy wants to kill us. He's trying to kill us. We're deeply wounded. We need to be healed. And then just to finish up this little section, underneath um, these emotions that are damaged and these false beliefs that feed these negative emotions, you've got this thing called trauma. This is simply one of the times where the enemy tries to take us out. He tries to steal, kill, and destroy us. Trauma is an event or a circumstance or a failed something that locks us down in a certain period or a certain place in our life that keeps us from being able to move on. Brothers, have you ever felt like you're a 35-year-old grown man with a little eight-year-old locked down, stuck somewhere inside your body? Sisters, you might have felt the same thing. Usually that's the result of trauma. So a couple of years ago, I was teaching at this Bible school out on the West Coast. Really an intimate place, and I loved it. About 35, about 35 students there. And um, one young man um, was kind of leader of the pack. I mean, he had Bible verses oozing out his ears. If you squeezed him, he'd quote a text. I mean, that's how. And he was the guy everybody would come to to uh, um, get, their, get their advice. But he was, he was so uh, hurt, and he kept coming to my cabin at night and saying, what's going on, Kevin? What, what's going on? I said, finally, I said, brother, I'm not a therapist. I don't know what's going on. But then I said, um, maybe this was the Holy Spirit. I said, can you just tell me one thing? What are you not telling me that you're afraid to tell me? Because if you told me, you're afraid I would reject you. And he said, well, there is this one thing. Between the ages of four and eight, he said, I've never told anybody this. I was ritually sexually abused by my older sister in the home. And I said, my brother, that feeling you have of being stuck, it's right there. It's right there. Trauma isn't always this. It can, it can be anything. It could be your mom or dad never, ever affirming you. It, it's trauma. You, you must be affirmed. We're made to be affirmed. It could be something small. It could be something big. But if it sticks you, if it sticks you. And I said to this brother, I said, how does that make you feel every day of your life? I'll never forget his words. He said, now this is the star, remember. This is the star Christian pupil. He's going to go out and be a pastor. He's going to change the world. He says, every day of my life, I feel dirty. And we're just going to try to preach that out of him. Trauma unhealed leads to false beliefs unhealed leads to negative emotions that mean when we're trying to preach at somebody about what God says, because maybe we've healed enough to receive it, 
they don't just need those words. They need whatever it is we have to give them that will heal them. And back to what I shared last year, it is the love of Christ coursing through you and your relationships, not only with one another, but with these non-believers that will begin to heal them to the point that they begin to feel they're set free, maybe even before they hear the first sermon at one church. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.8, for the love of Christ, love one another, Love one another deeply because that love will heal a multitude of sins. Do you feel the context for this now? Do you feel why we tend to skip that verse when we preach 1 Peter in our evangelical subculture today because we're so in our left brain? That verse makes no sense to us. But if what I said is true, then that verse stands out because folk need to be healed because they've got all this damage that the enemy has perpetrated upon. They could be making a billion dollars but jacked up inside. They don't just need a sermon and a song. Your worship team is plenty good enough. Your preaching is plenty good enough. This venue is plenty good enough. The next venue will be even better, plenty good enough. But I'm telling you, it's time to go to a deeper place with the love of Christ in you to be able to give that love away to folk who so desperately are longing, without even being able to articulate it, to be healed. And you might say, you might be saying, man, Brother, you, man, that ain't, love can't heal like that. It's healed me. Or is healing me. Shall I, can I say it that way? I'm still in the process of being healed, a.k.e. I'm still jacking up my marriage with my negative emotions sometimes. I still need more healing. I'm not done yet. By the time I think I'm done, my wife says, no, you're not done. You're not done. <laughs> used to have a brother named BK that used to, Bethesda King, named after the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. What a name, man. The brother that lost his dad when he was four, and he just literally drank his life away, got tangled up in the community with some bad eggs, went to prison for 20 years, came out and drank for another decade. And when, I, when we first got to that building, he was on the porch drinking. So many of our people have come out of so much wound and trauma. If you read the book, you, you'll see all kinds of different folk, from missionary kids to lawyers, but addicts and recovering prostitutes. And so all of us have been healed or are being healed from something. So when people would come up on the porch, and BK would be there, and he'd gotten involved with Islam uh, in jail, and so he, he had a lot of antipathy toward Christianity, Jesus dying on the cross and that thing. And so he would not only be drunk, and usually he hadn't changed his clothes in about a week. And by his own confession, he usually would have urinated on himself because he, he was a mess. And then he'd be belligerent, you know. Why you say Jesus died on the cross? He couldn't have died because, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm telling you, I watched this for five years. Our folks who were so filled with the love of God would just come up to that brother and they literally would press in to that anger and throw their arms around him. My assistant, her name is Susan Lubisky. Um, a sister who was a 10-year heroin addict for back in the day, been clean for about 25 years now. She'd just come up, Bethesda, I love you. She'd just press in, just love him, just love him, just love him, person after person after person, to the point that BK would be going, I ain't standing on this porch anymore, man. I'm leaving. <laughs> but then we lost touch with him. He left the porch, went out into another part of the community, ended up in a, in a, in a house where he almost froze to death. You know, he said, he said, Pastor Kevin, when I woke up the next morning, my beer was frozen. You know how cold it has to be for your beer to be frozen and how long it has to be out there for it to be frozen. He said, I felt like somebody said to me, if you don't do something, you're going to die. He went to treatment. 
He got clean. And in the, in the middle of his be, getting clean, he said, I'm clean now, but I know what began. Now listen, these are his words. I'm just telling his story. At his baptism, this was his story. He said, I started to think, I'm clean now. The treatment center is helping me get clean. But I can tell you what healed me. He said it was those folk over there in that broken down building that needs a million dollars worth of work with that broken down pastor who some days is okay and some days not and all the folk who are just folk who are trying to live into the love of Jesus and they love me and they love me and he said, God, I need a car and he got a job and God gave him a car and he drove back, showed up, he gained 70 pounds because he wasn't drinking anymore, got baptized and stood up and said, this is what the power of the love of God will do in your life if you'll let it. This is what the power of the love of God will do in your life if you'll let it. You think, you think the love of God won't heal? It will heal you. And through you will begin to heal others. Let me close with just a, a little section from this book. Not because it's like, Here's your advertisement to buy the book. Although, if that's the way you take it, that's just fine with me. But this chapter is about a brother uh, that I baptized back in the day. Caucasian brother. He's an, he was a, a CPA. Brilliant guy. Got a scholarship to Wayne State to play hockey. So this is kind of like the quintessential, you know, he's kind of made it, you know. And uh, when he got up that morning to, to talk about his journey and tell his story, he confessed something I didn't know. He said, for what you, what you need to know is that I'm a former white supremacist. Who, my brother downloaded neo-Nazi music into my iPod when I was a kid. I was eight years old listening to neo-Nazi music on the way home to school in Boston, Massachusetts. And he said, I'm here to testify today to the fact that the love of Christ, his story is here. The love of Christ. No one, no seminar. He didn't do any seminar. He didn't read any books about not being a racist. The, the, the hate started to kill him, and the love began to heal him. Through the woman that he married and her family, who he says in the book, he said they had nothing. They had nothing. They had no money. They had no power, but they had the love of Christ. And he said, I started to see it, and I started to know I had to have it. So, um, without this love of God in Christ coursing through our wounded spirits, that's you and me here, and lived out sacrificially in the community of Jesus. Listen to this now. The world will continue to bleed out. Marriages and families, communities, businesses, neighborhoods, nations, men and women, rich and poor, and every ethnicity, we will continue to hurt one another until everyone is simply dead. As I write, America is still reeling from the tragic opposite of love, human violence and death in Ferguson, Baltimore, Charleston, New York City, and South Carolina. And of course, legislators are throwing bills and laws at the pain as if a package of enforceable rules is the elixir for our hate. Educators are just as rabid about their new programs to help folks understand why we need to just get along. Well, let's be honest. History tells us it cannot work. 
we passed civil rights legislation in the 60s that obviously needed to be passed. And I honor the many who sacrificed to see equality in writing, to know at least that it's illegal in America to act out hate. And then in the 70s, we took diversity training. And much of the material was profound and deeply helpful. But none of those efforts could ultimately kill the hatred living in so many human hearts. Looking back on the civil rights era, a whole lot of folks today say, it's over. Getting together was a nice thought. We passed laws. We marched for justice at great personal risk. We sang about peace. We were so hopeful. We tried so hard. But the pain and division is still there. So now we're done. Have a nice life on your side of the fence, and I'll see you in glory. Just in the last week, I've wept with an Asian sister in Christ who feels she has spent her entire young life justifying her Korean existence. A group of 20-something university sisters who are so weary of being misunderstood and sexualized and stereotyped and judged by men. And a young marriage couple on the verge of divorce due to broken trust and all kinds of other pain. Just today at the gym, the news flashed on the TV screens that there had been another shooting in another theater, two dead, nine wounded. That report in the wake of five young soldiers shot the previous week in a military recruiting office. The world is broken. The world is dying. And if we think anything but the love of God and Jesus is going to heal our perpetual, seeping, death-dealing, hateful, relational wounds, we're delusional flat out ignoring Jesus Christ. All these stories aren't just about us healing. They're about us healing in order to heal the world. My father, my father, would you encourage us today that this community, one church, it's got, to, it's got to work. It's got to win. You are behind it because it is your vehicle for passing your healing to a broken world. Father, there, there are probably some folks here today who are still in the process of healing. Would you encourage them? Would you help them to talk to somebody before they leave today? I want to take the next step. What does it look like to get rid of the hate? What does it look like to get rid of the trauma? What does it look like for that false belief to shrink so I can hear the words of my God saying, I love you, son. I love you, daughter. I've got you. What does it look like to not be so angry or so sad all the time? What does it look like not to hide anymore? Oh, Father, would you continue your healing work in one church? so that they can give the healing love of Jesus to a broken world. We trust you, Father. We're walking with you one step at a time. Thank you for loving us.